0: Open your Bibles to Romans uh, chapter 4. You know, all religion has as its basic aim to justify people before God or before men. All religion is designed so that those who follow it are in one way or another declared to be right in some way. Or another way to say that, no one has ever designed a religion whose purpose is to make someone wrong. It's all about being right. It's all about being right with God. The question really has to do with how do you do that? The question then is simply, how does all this happen? How do you become right with God? How do you become justified? How do you become one who is not in the wrong? How do you go from being wrong to being right? Or how do you go from being sinful or rejected or lost or blind to one who is cleansed or accepted or found or understanding or however you define it. And in some cases, the co- consequence of of missing that are are we would say insignificant. They're simply temporal. There may be in some religions no concept of an afterlife. So that your consequences may be some benign view of annihilation, or maybe some uh, temporal consequences on the grand scale of morality of this life, the removal of blessings, or maybe a more difficult way, but in most religions it is, it is monumental, it is eternal, because these are issues of the afterlife, these are issues of where you spend eternity, whether it is some Continual cycle of reincarnation, some limbo, some purgatory, some hell. Everyone is out to define how you would be declared right. For some religions, it's a process. A process of understanding, being enlightened, being illumined, receiving a spark, fanning the flame. It's all a process of learning, of bringing yourself out of the darkness in your own mind or out of your backward way of thinking. For other religions, it's a ceremony. It's completing some ritual or some practice. Or you work to bring yourself out or to make yourself acceptable or to make yourself right with God. But what we come to today in Romans chapter 4 is Paul's deepening explanation... Of how to be right with God. And what he tells us, amazingly, is that this being right comes before religion. He doesn't present this right standing or this righteousness or this justification as the end result of some process the end result of some ceremony or anything like that. He doesn't present it as something that is the result of religion. He presents it as something that precedes religion. In fact, he's been laboring to teach us this all the way through the book of Romans, the first four chapters, as we've been walking slowly through it so that we can fully understand what he's saying here. Because as we've noted in the past... This is the definitive doctrine of Christianity. It's the definitive doctrine of the church. As Luther said, the church rises or falls on this doctrine of justification that we've been talking about. Justification specifically by faith. The doctrine of how we are justified, of how we are made right, of how we stand righteous before God. It is the definitive doctrine of the church. And as a definitive doctrine, this is the definitive text. In all of Scripture, Romans 4 In Romans 5, deal with justification in more explicit terms. Really, Romans 3, 4, and 5 in more explicit terms and in more detailed terms than you'll find anywhere else. And as we've been seeing, Paul is taking us not only through this definitive doctrine in this definitive text, but he's been giving us the definitive example of this doctrine in the person of Abraham. He is the definitive person who God sets before us and who God set before Israel from the very beginning of scripture and God gave to Israel as a definitive sign or gosh I should say God gave to Israel through him a de- definitive sign a reminder of this doctrine and that reminder or that sign was circumcision the problem is that From almost the very beginning, Israel misunderstood the sign. They misunderstood the sign, they misunderstood the doctrine, and so they misunderstood how you are made right with God. And even today, people misunderstand all these things, partly as a continuing misunderstanding that Israel had, but Paul seeks to set us straight in this passage. The story of Abraham is essentially the story of a man who was made right before God, not by religion, but prior to religion, prior to any formalization, prior to any hierarchy, prior to any uh, even text, prior to any ceremony. Prior to anything that we would identify with any kind of organized religion, Abraham wasn't given a religion, and then by adhering to it, he was made right with God. He was made right with God, and then subsequent to that, God gave him commandments and ceremonies by which he was to follow to worship God. But the order of the events and the order in which this all took place is very significant. It's significant to Abraham and it's significant to us today because the message from Abraham's life is the message for us that if you're going to be made right with God, if you're going to be right with your Maker, it will come prior before your religious observance. It will come prior. To anything you can or could or would or will do for God. It will precede any ceremony. It will precede any ritual. It will precede any work. It will precede anything you would do. By way of formal religion. By way of good deed. By way of whatever meritorious work you want to put in there. Your rightness before God will and must precede all of those things. That's Paul's message. The process of becoming right before God has nothing to do with any of those things. It has nothing to do with what you can accomplish. It has to do with one single thing. And that is simply God's declaration that you're right. His declaration that you stand justified before Him. His pronouncement in a judicial sense that your guilt is gone and that your your credit before Him is perfect in terms of your righteous deeds. You're made right by God simply by His declaration that you're right. And that's how you enter into a relationship with Him. That's how you enter a relationship with God. He declares you to be right. With His one legal pronouncement, your guilt wiped away, your credit, or you are credited, I say, with the righteousness of Christ. So that now your legal standing is based on a record of perfection which you didn't achieve, but was achieved for you by Jesus. Now this is the doctrine of the justification by faith. It's the doctrine that declares that a person is justified, made right before God, not based on things that they accomplish, but simply on the basis of believing. You believe and God declares you right. You exhibit faith and by that faith or through that faith, we should say, God declares you righteous. Now, as I said, this is the definitive doctrine and Paul is presenting it to us through the definitive example of Abraham. So you remember the question he began with last week in verse one of chapter four. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? What was gained by Abraham according to works? The answer at the end of verse two is nothing, nothing before God, Nothing Abraham did by his works, nothing according to his flesh resulted in anything before God. His religious observance, his good deeds did nothing for him. Indeed, verse 3 says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul there, quoting from Genesis 15:6, And it's God's declaration of how Abraham was made right with him. How he was made righteous. He was credited. He was accounted. We would say he was imputed with a righteousness simply by believing. Simply on the basis of faith and nothing else. And so now to drive that truth home, Paul returns in Romans 4 verse 9. He returns to that key passage out of Genesis and He continues to exegete it for us. That, that is the process by, by which we draw truth out of a Scripture. He's doing what every great Bible expositor does. He is expounding this passage for us, drawing truth out of it within its grammatical and within its historical context. He's pulling out the implications from the grammar and the history of the passage. And he does it by returning and asking more observation questions, if you will. Or making more observations about the text. Four, in particular, that specifically speak to the relationship of Abraham's righteous standing with God. And the role of rituals and ceremonies in that righteousness. And you'll see he begins in verse 9, first of all, with the question of circumcision. The question of circumcision. He simply asked in verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Now the blessing is what he just spoke about in verses seven through eight. It was from a quotation of David in Psalm 32, the blessing of being forgiven, the blessing of not having your sins counted against you. And what he's asking in verse nine is this blessing of forgiveness, is this blessing of not having your sins counted for you, against you, is this blessing only for people who are circumcised or those who are in the Uh, what is considered the circumcision by Israel. It's a legitimate question given the Old Testament and given the the popular understanding of Jews in that day. It was a very relevant question for many of Paul's readers who particularly were Jewish because for them, circumcision was the basic act which defined them as God's people. It was the, the basic thing that defined them as a Jew It marked them as the special covenant people of God, and the man who was not circumcised was literally to be cast out of the camp of Israel, to be put out of the nation that was according to the law of Moses. He was to be shunned. He was to be banished. He was to be excommunicated according to the law, and in that fact, Jews came to see the world then basically as two groups of people, the circumcised and the uncircumcised, that is the way in which they referred to themselves and to others. That was their designation. Because for them, to be defined as circumcised was to be defined as a Jew and as one of God's people. And to be defined as a Jew was to be defined as chosen. To be defined as blessed. And so really Paul's question would sound to them like this. Is this blessing then only for those who are God's people by your definition, that is by circumcision? Or is it also for those who are not God's people by your definition, that is for those who are uncircumcised? And when you define God's people based on the fact of whether or not someone is circumcised... This is a very relevant question. Is the blessing of forgiveness only for circumcised people? And more particularly, in Paul's exposition of Genesis 15, was Abraham's circumcision necessary for this blessing? Was Abraham circumcised when he received the blessing that Paul's been talking about? Was Abraham One of God's people, based on your definition, when God declared him to be righteous? That might be easily overlooked by many Jews. It might have been assumed by many Jews when they read the text, or it was a question they simply didn't ask of the text of the Bible. But it was a question in Paul's mind that was staring them in the face as they read the story of Abraham. And it brings us to our second observation that Paul makes in this text, which is the timing of Abraham's circumcision. The timing of Abraham's circumcision, because the chronology of Abraham's life, the historical situation of the passage, becomes a key in Paul's interpretation of it. The historical setting becomes key. In interpreting this, you'll see at the end of verse 9, for we say that faith was credited to Abraham as righteous. That's Genesis 15 6. And then he says, How then was it counted to him? How or when was his faith counted as righteousness? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? And Paul says very plainly, it wasn't after, it was before. If the historical accuracy of Genesis means anything to you, then you have to conclude based on the history and the chronology of Abraham's life that circumcision had nothing to do with his righteousness. It had nothing to do with him being counted as right before God or as one of God's people. Because when you read the Genesis account, what you read in Genesis 12 is that God originally called Abraham out of Ur in the Chaldees. Genesis 12, we're told that Abraham was 75 years old when God began to work in his life. 75 years old at least when he left Haran where he had lived for 15 years at that point. In Genesis 15, God establishes his covenant with Abraham While he had no children, and it's in chapter 15 that we read that God declared Abraham to be righteous. He declared him righteous simply because he believed in God, and he strikes his covenant with Abraham in that passage and promises to make his descendants as many as the stars of the heaven. Even though Abraham, at that point, had no offspring at the age of 75. The next chapter, Genesis 16, we read that Abraham gave birth to or, or, or uh, uh, had a son, an illegitimate son, Ishmael, at the age of 86. But this wouldn't be his promised line, his promised heir. God rejected him. Until you come to Genesis 17, and we read that Abraham was 99 years old. When the Lord appeared to him and gave him the sign of circumcision. So now 24 years after Genesis 15, 24 years after his uh, age of 75, when God originally establishes his covenant with Abraham, 24 years later, God comes along and gives Abraham the sign of circumcision. And we read there at the end of Genesis 17... Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. The Scripture is explicit about the timing. And so Paul's simply reading the Bible as it is revealed, as its historical account comes to us. And making the clear observation based on the chronology. God declared a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 when he's 75 years old. At that point, God declared to Abraham that he's righteous based on his faith. And it wasn't until 24 years later that God gives the ceremony of circumcision. And so the obvious conclusion from Paul's question, his observation here, the obvious conclusion is that this righteousness, this forgiveness could not have been in any way dependent on circumcision. Or we might say that circumcision had no instrumentality in Abraham's standing before God. His standing was established prior to his circumcision. Prior to and independent of it, his standing was established prior to and independent of any ceremony, of any ritual whatsoever. His standing before God was established really prior to, as we said earlier, any formal religious involvement, prior to the establishment of any religion, prior to the observance of any religious practice, Abraham was declared right before God. And all of this, everything you read in Genesis, confirms Paul's main points: That it's not by religious works that you're made right with God. It's not by religious works that we're justified. We're not justified according to anything we do. We certainly aren't justified according to ceremonies and rituals, not even circumcision. So that the thing that makes you one of God's people is not by doing any of that stuff. It is simply by believing. It is simply by believing. Now, all this was given in the book of Genesis, not just for Abraham's sake. And it wasn't just for the sake of the Jews in their own scripture. But Paul tells us it was for the sake of all people throughout all time. Who would ever believe in the way that Abraham believed. He sets the paradigm of how someone gets right with God. His experience sets the paradigm for all people who follow him. And in order to communicate that. God establishes a sign. Which really is the next observation that Paul makes in the text of Genesis. Which is the sign of God circumcision the sign of circumcision he says in verse 11 he that is Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised so circumcision is called a sign and called a seal a sign in the sense that it points to something and a seal in the sense that it guarantees something as a sign, it pointed to the faith that Abraham had. It represented him leaving behind his old life of paganism, which he had in Ur and which he had in, uh, to some degree in Haran. He leaves behind his old life. He leaves behind his family, all of his connections, all that stuff. And it represents the new life that he began with God, following God, believing God, Trusting God, this is His new life. And as many have pointed out, God establishes this ritual, apart from all the other rituals that could have been established by God, God establishes this ritual to be performed on the reproductive organ in order to demonstrate this newness of life. Partly as a way of signifying new life that God had excuse me, new life that Abraham had when he placed his faith in God. And so Abraham was, in a sense, reborn. He was reborn. A brand new life, even at the age of 75 years old, where from that point forward, he now believed everything that God said. And he was reborn. But the sign of circumcision is also a seal. A seal in the sense that it was a guarantee that God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness. It was a guarantee that God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness. That's what Paul says in verse 11. A seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. God credited Abraham as righteous. He counted him as one of the righteous ones according to his faith. God treated him accordingly. God blessed Abraham and made a covenant with Abraham based on his new righteousness. You understand that Abraham had no right to such a covenant, he didn't do anything to receive the covenant. It was completely a covenant of grace. And based on this new righteousness, God promises to bless all of Abraham's descendants. And so circumcision became a seal or a guarantee of these promises. Much like we would put a seal on a contract or much like they would really in the ancient days a sort of ancient form of signature, when they would establish a contract, a king or a dignitary would take their signet ring and stamp on the document in some form of wax or some other permanent fixture, they would stamp on the document their official seal guaranteeing that they will uphold their part of the contract. That's why Genesis 17 if you were to go back and read Genesis 17, it calls circumcision a sign, a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Genesis 17:11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. It was a sign. It was a seal. It was a guarantee that God would not forget his covenant with Abraham. Now, God had done this kind of thing before. He had given a sign to Noah that he wouldn't destroy the world again by flood. And he did that with a sign, a rainbow that he put into the sky as some sort of seal, some sort of guarantee of his promise. And later in the new covenant... God puts His Holy Spirit in the hearts of believers and the Bible tells us that this is a seal or a down payment, as it says in some passages, a guarantee of our future salvation. And this becomes the sign to us that God is going to fulfill His promises in the new covenant. And so with Abraham, he was giving this sign or this seal of Abraham's righteousness, of God's commitment to Abraham because of that righteousness, as a memorial forever. And the mistake that Israel made was to assume that to receive the sign was to receive the same righteousness that Abraham received. The mistake that Israel made was to assume that to receive the sign was to receive the same righteousness that it represented. The mistake was to believe that to receive this was to receive the blessing of forgiveness. And then for Jews, it was to begin to think that God blessed you Or favored you because you received the sign. Or because you performed the ceremony or the ritual in some way. And what they missed in all of this was the sign wasn't about them. The seal wasn't about them. It was about Abraham. It was about Abraham's faith. It was, in some ways, it was like the Scripture itself. Something that pointed them back to Abraham's faith. That's what the sign, that's what the seal was. It was something that called them to walk in a similar pathway. It was a sign or a seal which itself didn't guarantee anything. Which is really Paul's final point in the observation here in the text. In verses 11 and 12, the purpose. The purpose of circumcision. He says there in the middle of verse 11, the purpose of all this, the purpose of this sign was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who walk in the footsteps of faith. That our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. In other words, the purpose of all this was to make a- Abraham the father of all who believe. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well. It was a righteousness that didn't come because of the sign. It didn't become, come because of the seal. It didn't come because of even the covenant. Even the covenant made with Abraham, didn't guarantee them anything. It was a righteousness that comes, if it comes to anyone, it comes only because they themselves believe. It comes only because they themselves believe. It was a righteousness you receive on an individual basis, based on your own faith in God, whether you are circumcised or not. Paul says this is the purpose of it. This is the purpose of circumcision. According to Genesis, as he expounds it here, this is the implication of the sequence, the implication of the chronology, the implication of the timing of Abraham's own circumcision and how he was counted as righteousness 24 years before that. All this was the implication. Now, there were many Jews who misunderstood it. They looked at circumcision as some sort of personal Guarantee to them individually. They looked at it as some sort of seal for them individually. So that if they had circumcision, if they had the sign, God was now obligated to them in some way. And the question of their righteousness was just assumed. They just assumed that God counted them as righteous. Righteous. Not because they had faith, but because they had the sign. And they completely misinterpreted the whole thing. They misinterpreted the sign as something that guaranteed them blessing. When in fact, the only guarantee was a blessing to Abraham. You understand that? Circumcision only points to Abraham. Circumcision only points to Abraham. It didn't point to the person who had it. It was only a guarantee of promises God made to Abraham. And then by Abraham, everyone who followed him in faith, not in the sign. The reality is, if they didn't have personal faith in God, they had no relationship to God. No matter how many rituals they followed. If they don't have personal faith in God, then they have no guarantee from God. They have no covenant with God. They have nothing. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look with me over at John chapter 8. John 8 and in verse 39, Jesus addresses this issue explicitly. He says in John 8, 39... John writes that some Jews answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, then you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. They said to him, We're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I'm here. And I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. You hear what he's saying? You are not of Abraham. Abraham is not your father. You have no relationship with God. Why? Because you don't believe. You have no relationship with God. You have no covenant with God. You have no uh, uh, access to God. You have nothing. You can have all the signs. You can have all the circumcision. You can have all the ceremony. But you have nothing if you have no faith. The Jews made the same mistake like so many make today. They assume that because they go through some ritual that it means that somehow... God was going to bless them in the same way that He blessed Abraham. That somehow God was now obligated to bless them because of their ritual. Much like some of you here who have believing parents. And you see that God has blessed your parents. God has granted them new life. God has granted them peace. God has given to them forgiveness. He's given them joy in their hearts. And you see that. And if both of your parents believe God has blessed them with a Christian marriage and a a Christian home. And God pours out blessings upon your home. And in some ways you experience those blessings because of their godly choices they make the choices that bring blessing into your home and as first corinthians says because of that sanctifying work in their life you receive some of the overflow of their godly choices And you assume that if you do certain things that your parents do, and you assume that if you go to church like they do, and you assume that if you undergo baptism like they did, you assume all of that, that God will bless you in the same way that you have somehow the same relationship with God because you did all the things that were asked of you. You did all the things that your parents did. You assume all of that. But what you miss is that you don't have the same faith as your parents. You're making the same mistake the Jews make. It's not a circumcision. It's not a baptism. It's not going through all the Sunday schools and all the curriculums and doing all the works. It's not all that. It doesn't matter. You can't assume that because God has blessed your parents and you do the same things they do, that somehow, therefore, you have a relationship with God. If you don't believe, you don't. You don't. It's through faith. It's through faith that you enter a relationship with God. It's through faith that you're counted righteous. It's through faith that God blesses. Now, the Jews misinterpreted the sign. And people even today misinterpret the sign. There are lots of Christians out there, first of all, in the Roman Catholic Church, lots of other people in other denominations that still carry on that Catholic practice, baptizing their infants, believing somehow that that enters them into some sort of covenant obligation. They believe that by baptizing their infants, they're placing them into some sort of covenant with God. They believe that the baptism in some way obligates God to some sort of blessing over them, they are essentially trusting that God will count the ritual as some sort of credit to their account. Or that He will treat them at least differently than He treats the world because of some ritual. Or they believe at least that God is obligated in some way to the child because of the faith of the parents. That somehow the children will receive grace because of the faith of the parents. It's the same mistake Israel made. They thought the sign or the seal was some sort of guarantee of blessing on them individually. The Westminster Catechism, speaking of infant baptism, says, for example, quote, the efficacy of baptism... Is not tied to that moment wherein in, wherein it is administered. Yet, notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred. End quote. In other words, whenever we're Participating in infant baptism, it isn't just some demonstration. It isn't just some offer of faith to this individual child some point down the road. It is actually conferred to the child. There's some obligation. There's some covenant. There's some, some way in which they're entering into a relationship with God on some basis other than their faith. Maybe the faith of their parents, maybe the faith of Abraham, but that is not legitimate. Same mistake the Jews made concerning the sign of circumcision, but Paul couldn't be more clear. The purpose, the purpose of the ritual was first, you'll notice, to make him the father of all who believe without circumcision to make him the father of all who believe without a sign without the sign without the ritual without the ceremony and then secondly to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. In other words, to be the father of those who believe with the ritual. It doesn't matter whether or not you have the ritual. The only thing that matters is whether you walk in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham. He's the only, excuse me, those are the only ones who are spiritually related Those are the only ones who have any serious claim to being the children of Abraham. By the way, if Paul in any way embraced some form of replacement theology, if he believed that somehow this ceremony was replaced with some baptismal ceremony, infant baptism or whatever, baptism even in general, if that replaced circumcision in the Old Covenant, this would have been the perfect place For him to insert that. He would be the father of all those who follow Abraham in the new sign. The sign of baptism. But he doesn't say that. He speaks of Abraham being the father of those who don't have the sign. And those who do. In other words, true genuine Israelites. As he says back in Romans chapter 2. You're not an Israelite who's simply an Israelite outwardly, but you're an Israelite who's one inwardly. In other words, you can have the circumcision, you can have all the sign, but still not be a true Israelite. It's only those who have the circumcision, who have the true sign and have the faith of Abraham. They're the true Israel. And then apart from them, he's also the father of all those who don't have circumcision. He's also the father of every person who's ever existed who walks in the same steps of faith as Abraham. Two groups of people to be sure but one way of salvation which has always been God's way of salvation whether Israel missed it or not whether people today miss it or not people who believe that somehow they've got to participate in some religion somehow that the way to God is by doing all the ceremonies, that somehow the way to God is by, is by making themselves more pure or more right or more holy or more worthy. They, they feel like there's some preparation process that they've got to go to to present themselves to God. They look at others who are religious and feel like they have to measure up to that or they look at their parents and feel like that in order to be a follower of God, they've got to somehow meet up to that standard. And the text tells you absolutely not how was Abraham righteous before God? It was long before he did any of that stuff. It was simply because he believed. That's a challenge to you this morning. A challenge to you is where your trust is to be right before God. Whether it is in your own good deeds or your own performance or your own ceremonies or whatever it might be or whether or not it is the only place that God has ever revealed as the true pathway to righteousness faith justification by faith it is those who believe who God blesses it is those who believe whose sins are wiped away it is those who believe for whom their trespasses are no longer counted against them it's those who believe who will enter into the kingdom of God. Well, let's stand together when we dismissed by a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for the truth that comes to us by Your Word. It comes with clarity. It comes with conviction. We are beholden to it. And we pray that You would help us to be careful students of it. As Paul so carefully read the Scripture and understood its meaning and yielded Himself to it and battled for it. Make us those who when Your Word speaks, we believe it. We exhibit our faith by following it. We demonstrate that we are Yours, the people of God simply by believing. Father, I pray for those who are here today who don't know You. Those who have been trusting in some ceremony, trusting even in the faith of their parents, trusting in, trusting in the fact that they have gone through rituals and classes or, or deeds and works. I pray for them, Lord, that they would see the hopelessness of all that, that they would understand the emptiness of their heart even after all those ceremonies. And that they would lay down in their hearts the pride of their life, confessing themselves as hopeless sinners, but ready to receive the righteousness You give by faith. We pray, Father, that You would open eyes and hearts and make them Your own. Even today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.